If we will turn in our Bibles to Acts 1-3. Acts 1-3. Now you can spread out too. You don't have to act like you like the people next to you. You can spread out. That's part of the reason why we're renovating that building over there. We're running out of space. Running out of space. So, amen. That's a good thing. So they will, uh, the children, when we renovate that building, they can, they'll meet and, and, and over there and allow us to continue growing in here. But Acts 1-3, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 1-3. Luke, Dr. Luke, if you will, has written the book of Acts, and Acts really captures the first 30 years or so of the church age, of the growth and the establishment of the church it's a very transitional book in that sense. The, the transi- it shows the transition of people moving really from law to grace, got, bridges the Gospels and Romans. And Luke writes this in Acts 1-3. Well, let's start in, and we'll start in verse 1 just to get the context. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And this is the verse I want to focus on today. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. You know, I, today I want to I wanna really put forth for us really an apologetic sort of message. And when I say apologetic, we're not apologizing for the, for the resurrection. We're not apologizing for the truths that we hold dear. The word apologetic there literally means a defense. I want us to, to be able to walk out of here and give a defense for the hope that is in us, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, and specifically with regards to the resurrection. I want us to walk out of here with an unshakable confidence that the resurrection is a reality and there is a tremendous amount of evidence and proof that the Word of God that Jesus Christ Himself gave to us with regards to the resurrection. This is not something that all of history and all the evidence points against and yet we believe. No, we believe because the evidence is very clear. There's a tremendous amount of evidence regarding the resurrection the writers of the word of god the the apostles the early believers their belief was solely rooted their message was solely rooted in the resurrection because it was foundational the the greek word here for proofs it, it literally it 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 it, mean, it refers to undeniable evidence the word literally means undeniable evidence as contrasted with the proof claimed by a witness undeniable evidence is that is that what the, is that's what that word means the, these are clear these are hard truths these are it's clear evidence that proves that Luke's assertion that Jesus Christ was resurrected it literally beyond dispute for these writers it would have been beyond dispute that's what that word is pointing to the the fact of the resurrection was to be the solid foundation of the apostles faith and it was the very it was the chief the main ingredient of their message early on the resurrection the resurrection and i want to give us 
some of these convincing proofs, if you will. There will be eight of them. You see them on your handout. I want to, and I, and I want to give them to us so that we would, we would hold them so that we would be confronted with the question of do we believe them? And at the end, I want to bring it to conclusion by asking that question because the, the fact of the resurrection has tremendous impact not only on believers, but it has tremendous implications for non-believers. And that's what I want to bring us to a conclusion at the end of this. So we're going we're gonna to bounce around. I usually like to jump in a passage and stay there, but we're going to bounce around here. And so uh, it'd be like Bible drills or sword drills here. But, um, and give us some proofs, some proofs of the resurrection. Why were the, why were the apostles ultimately, why were they willing to give it their lives for the fact of the resurrection? There are some very clear proofs that I want us to see this morning. And the first one you see on your handout there is the evidence of the stone. The evidence of the stone. Look with me in Matthew 20, or listen as I read Matthew 28. I'm just going to read these as I get to them for the sake of the time. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 4. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. In, in Mark 16, verses 1 through 4, we, we read it as well. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. In Luke 24, verse 2, we have an account there of the stone. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. In, in John 20, verses 1 through 9, look at the way that John uh, shares it. and it, we'll, we'll save that one for later, but he's very clear that the, the tomb, the stone... In verse 2, and they saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. You say, why does that matter? Well, it, it matters greatly. The evidence of the stone is a tremendous evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. And, and it's really twofold. The first thing you see, A, there on your handout, is the seal on the stone. When they, when they closed up Jesus in that tomb... the the Romans had a, a seal placed on that stone to, to make sure that they knew, and they placed Roman guards to watch over that seal. The, the seal consisted of a, of a cord set in wax around the stone where it was connected to the tomb where they would know if it was broken. They would know undeniably if it was broken. And, and in Matthew 27 we see clearly that the seal on the stone was, as claimed by the Pharisees, was re, it was requested by Pilate to guard against any fraud. It was placed there to guard against any lies that the disciples might have. If they came to steal the body, if they came to get the body, they would be caught. They would be found out. And the, the, the irony is, is God is taking the very thing that the world tried to use to prevent 
And yet God is saying, no, no, not only that actually helps our case. That actually proves the resurrection. You say, why, why was it important? Because the presence of the Roman soldiers at the tomb and, and the Roman seal over the door, it, 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 over, the, over the stone door, it made the possibility of stealing the body even more difficult, even less probable. There, there was security there. The, the likelihood that, that, that these timid, fearful Galilean disciples of Jesus could steal the body out from underneath the noses of the Roman guard was highly unlikely. These were highly trained, highly commissioned Roman guards that were set to guard the tomb. I mean... Even, even if they had been asleep, even if they had fallen asleep, the, nose, I mean, the noise around the stone would have awakened them. And, and the, the fact is that if you look at, and we'll get to it, but the, the fact of how highly trained these soldiers were, there was a seal, again, set on the stone, would have made it impossible for, the, for, the, for Jesus' followers to just come and take the body. But not only the seal on the stone, the fact that, as we saw, the stone was rolled away. The the tombs in Palestine were were somewhat like a cave. They would have been hewn out or carved out of the side of a mountain. There would have been a a, a rectangular opening of sorts that you would have ducked to get in, and it would have opened up into a main central room, and they would have carved out little little niches, little um, places to lay the bodies uh, on one of the on one of the side of the walls, and, and oftentimes it would have it would have had a little bit of elevation to it where the head would have been a little bit above the rest of the body. And when they when they chose this tomb for Jesus, they it says that they rolled a circular stone or heavy disc in front of that opening. And what they would do is the stone would be over here, and there would be a little bit of a hill leading into the opening, and when they were done, they would remove whatever was blocking that stone, and the stone, by its own weight and gravity, would literally roll and fo- roll down to cover up the door of the tomb. The, the weight of this stone would have easily been, uh, most people conjecture that it could have easily been several tons. It, it would have taken many, many, many men to try to move that stone at all, much less move that stone uphill out of the door of Jesus' tomb. And you have to ask yourself, who would, who would roll it away? Who would roll the stone away? The enemies wouldn't have rolled the stone away. The whole purpose of the stone being there was they wanted to keep the body in. They, they wouldn't have rolled it away. If the disciples had done it, well, we'll see later. They clearly did it without anyone else's knowledge, not even, the, not even Mary and Mary. They didn't know. Because they go to the tomb and they see that it's empty and they run back to tell the disciples. So if the disciples did it, they did it without the knowledge of anybody else. And the reality is when we see in Luke 24, Mary, Mary and she's going to run back to tell the disciples and their response is, that's nonsense. The tomb is empty. No, lady, that's nonsense. They knew. The the, the fact that guards were present, highly trained Roman guards, again, made this nearly, if not completely, impossible. The women wouldn't have been able to move the stone. 
I mean, they went and looked for the, they went and looked. I don't mean to be like you're weak or something like that. It's just, I, as I said that, I thought, well, that probably didn't sound very good. We love, we love, we do, we love our women here. They're strong. Um, I mean, but they, they wouldn't have, I mean, they came to the tomb to finish things off, to finish the, the, uh, the, what was needed to be done because it was on the Sabbath. They were wondering themselves, who moved the stone? The truth is that we saw in Matthew, it tells us that an angel of the Lord moved the stone. And, and this shows divine in, in, intention and divine intervention. And you say, well, why was the stone rolled away? The stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that his disciples and everyone else could get in. To see that it was empty. To see that Jesus was no longer there. Jesus didn't need the stone to be moved away for him to get out. He passed right out of that cave like he passed right through those grave clothes. The stone was rolled away so that others could get in to see the fact that the tomb was empty. In spite of all of the efforts, in spite of all of the attempts to make sure that that tomb, that Jesus remained in that tomb, guess what they found that morning? The tomb was empty. And the tomb itself was an astounding evidence to the fact of the resurrection. When you consider the fact that the Roman guards were there, the fact that there was a Roman seal there, the fact that there was a, uh, probably a two-ton stone rolled in its place, and yet the, the stones rolled away, proving Not only, the, not only the stone, not only evidence of the stone, but the evidence of the empty tomb. We, we know from Scripture that Jesus was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. We see that in John 19, verses 38 and 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. All four Gospels testify to this fact. And, and if, if Jesus' body, if, if he was to be resurrected, if, if Jesus was bodily resurrected from the dead, we would expect that his body was no longer in the tomb, and that's exactly what they found. That's exactly what they discovered on, on Easter morning. Sunday morning, they found the tomb was empty. His body was gone, and yet the grave clothes remained. The, the, fact, that the, the fact that the tomb was empty has led people to, to all kinds of conclusions, all kinds of conjecture, they don't want to. They want to. Don't want to acknowledge the fact that Jesus was resurrected because there are implications for that. I mean, the reality is this: if 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 Jesus' body was still in the tomb, if they were making that up, the Jewish leaders would have brought that to the attention. Peter, if Jesus' body was still in the tomb on the day of Pentecost, when Peter begins preaching in Jerusalem, and and. The, he's saying that the tomb is empty. The Jewish leaders could have grabbed him and just said, look, you're crazy. The tomb is not empty. I'll show you. 
They would have said, look, here's Jesus, here's his body. He didn't rise from the dead. People have conjectured that, oh, well, well the, the Romans hid his body. Why would they have done that? To cause, what, to cause what happened? They wouldn't have stolen the body. And when they started preaching like this, that he rose from the dead, they would have said, oh, liar, liar, here he is. We tricked you. No. There's not a single ancient record that attests to the fact that Jesus' body was not resurrected, that they found his body. It's gone. Instead, the Jewish leaders who opposed Christianity, they tried to invent the idea that the body was stolen. Look at Matthew 28. Clearly, they didn't take it. They're trying to create a story that it was stolen. Matthew 28, verses 11 and following. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed, and the story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Who created the, who created the lie that his body was stolen? The Romans did. Because they knew the implications. The, the fact, and, and that, that the fact that, that Jesus' very enemies would attest and acknowledge an empty tomb only lends authenticity to the accounts. I mean, if you're trying to stop something from happening, if you're trying to prevent something from spreading, you're not going to add to it by, by giving an affirmation of it. You're not going to help your enemy make his case. I mean, if, if opponents of the eyewitnesses knew that certain facts were true and they attest to those certain facts, that just helps your case. The fact that the Romans are trying to come up with a, with a scheme here to, to lie about it and paying people to lie about it only adds to the fact of what the disciples were saying is true. And not only that, the disciples of Christ, they didn't take this story to Athens or to Rome or to some faraway city and start preaching Christ. They went back to the city of Jerusalem and started preaching there. If what they were saying was false, if what they were saying was untrue, they would have known in Jerusalem. The reality is, is that the empty tomb was too notorious to be denied. The resurrection could, not, could have not been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day had it not been true. They're, they're preaching in the very city where all this occurred. And, and there was, there was, there was you, no dispute only because it was true. They, they didn't have anything to stand on. Adding to the fact of all of this is that the Roman guards fled. They left their place of responsibility. Experts on, on what the Roman guard and, and that, how they were trained and all that, saying for, some, for, for them to do that, for somebody to have broken into that tomb under their watch would have resulted in their death. It would have resulted in their death. For them to have... For them to have allowed that to happen, the fear of the wrath of their superiors, the fear of, meant that they paid, these were the most trained, disciplined individuals. Dr. George Curry, who is a, a student of Roman military discipline, wrote this, that the fear of punishment produced flawless attention to duty 
especially in the night watchers, an expert on what Roman soldiers were like at that time based on the history. He said, because of the fear of they would lose their life if what they were set to do did not, was not accomplished, they were set to guard the tomb, if something happened to that, they would lose their life. You threaten me with that kind, I'm going to make sure it gets done. These were disciplined individuals. The reality is the body is gone, the tomb is empty for the very thing that they were set to make sure didn't happen and to guard against, and they fled. They had no answer. He was risen. So not only evidence of the stone, the evidence of the empty tomb. What about the response of Jesus' followers to the empty tomb? The response of Jesus' followers. Look with me in Luke 24. Upon seeing the stone removed, Mary's immediate reaction is what? Not Jesus' resurrected, thieves. Perhaps even the Jews. Somebody has stolen the body. She did not go there anticipating a resurrection. She did not run up there to say, hey, let's go see the evidence of the resurrection. She runs and tells Peter and John. But look, 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 at the, look at the account of this in Luke 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. Listen, look at verse 11. But these words appeared to them, meaning the disciples, as nonsense. The disciples' response to an empty tomb was, that's nonsense. And they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping to look in. And when he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. The, 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 the disciples' response to the news of the empty tomb was not, Hey, he's risen. Of course it's empty. It was, no, no, that's nonsense. They knew there's a stone rolled over that. There's a Roman seal rolled over that. There's Roman guards watching it. That's crazy. They did not believe them. The, the, the reality is in spite of all of Jesus' efforts, in spite of John 2 where he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise up. In spite of John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, I would have told you. In my Father's house are many rooms and I, I'm coming back. In spite of all of that, they did not grasp the truth of the resurrection. That was not what they were anticipating. These disciples were not trying to prove, not trying to create something that was disproven. They didn't grasp the resurrection. They were not trying to cover their tracks. This, in many ways, has taken them by surprise as well. And the response of Jesus' followers, they weren't. They didn't think that, to, hey, we need, to, we need to make this happen just in case it doesn't happen. So they didn't, they didn't grasp the resurrection. They're not trying to follow up their tracks or, or make something to, to support Christianity. They didn't grasp that. 
Fourthly, the evidence of the grave clothes. Turn with me to John 20. I love this section in John 20, verses 1 through 9. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were running to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. You know John's writing this gospel. He had to make sure you knew he was faster than Peter. Does that really matter? I, I just want to let you know, I got there before Peter. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first, again, he says it twice, so the other disciple who had first came to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. Listen. Listen to verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. The, the resurrection was not something that was concocted by the disciples. They did not grasp that. Jesus had made that clear to them. They did not grasp the resurrection. They're not trying to concoct a story to support Jesus's statements they themselves did not grasp jesus statements and it's interesting here J john gets to the tomb first he glances in sees it steps out peter comes in you see peter comes in in verse 5 it says that he saw he, he simply observes the facts he notices that there's a that there's a deflated uh linen wrapping there he notices that that you know what something doesn't look right here he notices Think about this. Had the, you, when, you, when you look, you literally, like, the, the bed would have looked kind of like this. The head would have been up here. What he sees is the fact that it's not a mess. The, the tomb is not, it's not like somebody went in there to steal the body and had hastily unwrapped. The, literally, what he saw was that the linen wrappings had deflated. The weight of that wrapping, the weight of all the spikes, the weight, the weight of, it, it just deflated. The head, which was wrapped separately on a cliff, has kind of just rolled down to the bottom here. He sees that. He, he sees that, that it's in an undisturbed fashion. He sees that, that the head, was, which is wrapped separately, is, is sitting over here. If somebody had removed these from his body, they wouldn't have been, just have been lying in their original place. It would have been a mess in there. And, and Peter, it says Saul, that word just means he's pondering what he observed. He's trying to, he's trying to put it all together. And then John re-enters a second time, and look what it says. It says, so Peter, Simon came and saw, and, and saw, look, and then he, and, and so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the and face to face. So the other disciple who had first come in entered, and he saw and believed, verse 8. That word saw is a different, is a different word. It literally, like in cartoons, when the light bulb appears over your head and you get what you're saying, that's what that word saw means. John goes in a second time, and he sees it, and he immediately understands. The light comes on as to what happened. An intelligent comprehension of the facts. The word there means mental perception resulting from the evidence. 
He looks at the evidence and he completely understands. Peter's still trying to figure out what does all this mean. John gets it. John understands right there, our Savior rose. Our Savior rose from the dead. And in verse 9 it says, he sees and believes. He understands the Old Testament passages that, that foretold that Jesus' body would not undergo a decay. He understood, remembering all that Jesus had said, his own words about being cut off, about returning by the means of the, of the resurrection. They had not understood before, but now it makes sense. The light comes on. They understand the ramifications. They understand the implications of what they're seeing in this tomb. In Luke, uh, I think it's 25. Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter his glory? He gets it. But the disciples' reaction to seeing, the, to seeing what they saw was further evidence of Christ's resurrection. Again, don't get this thing. The, the, I, I, I do not believe, it's just my conviction, I do not believe that, that the things were neatly folded up over here in the corner. Literally, Jesus' body passed out of the weight of those wrappings, and it would, you take something in something and take it out, the weight of it would have just deflated. That's what they saw. The, the wrappings were just simply deflated on themselves because Jesus had passed right through them. He didn't need to unwrap himself. He just passed right through them. And that's what they're seeing and believing. But, but not only their response, fifthly, the evidence of Christ's appearances. The evidence of Christ's appearances. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus personally appeared to individuals following the resurrection. Look, look at, uh, uh, start in verse um, uh, 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for, your, for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, Listen, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. What is significant about Paul pointing out that most of the people that Jesus appeared to are still alive when he writes this? If he was lying, they could point it out. If he was trying to make it up, they would say, no, 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 you're lying. This is not what we saw. That did not happen. He appeared to over 500, never mind appearing to the disciples and breaking bread with them and eating some fish on the shore. 500 people saw Jesus Christ's resurrected body, saw him alive at one time. And, and people try to respond to this saying, well, it was a mass hallucination. It was this, it was that. No, no, it was Jesus had risen from the dead and 500 people were witnessed. Jesus is making sure they understand, I'm alive. I'm alive. For 40 days, he appeared to people in his resurrected form. For 40 days, he ate with them. Huge evidence. Six, the evidence of the transformed disciples. Their transformed lives would be, would be the sixth piece of evidence. You look, at, you look at the disciples after Jesus died, fearful, huddled up in a room, scared to death, wondering what's going on, and yet after Jesus appears to them, they're bold as lions. 
I mean, Peter himself goes from denying three times to going to stand before the very leaders that could, that could kill him, that eventually would kill him for his profession. Christ has told them, I'm going to die, but three days later I will be raised. That was a very integral part of Jesus' claims. Yet they're downhearted, they're, they're discouraged, but something changed. And, and, and what changed was the appearance of their Savior alive. And after the resurrection, they're fearless, they're joyful. Peter, again, who denied the Lord, proclaimed at Pentecost in front of the very religious leaders, again, that could crucify him. The very religious leaders that indeed crucified our Savior. And it's interesting, his message had one theme, the resurrection. Peter preached one thing, the resurrection. You, you can see examples of this in, in, in Acts. Look with me at Acts 2, 23. Or just listen as I, as I read it. This man, this is Peter speaking, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But listen, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. What was Peter's message? It was a resurrected Christ. Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. The whole basis of his preaching is a resurrected Savior. Chapter 4, verse 10. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Verse 33 of that same chapter. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundance of grace was upon them. The, these men go from scared to death of dying to eagerly anticipating dying. They, they began to preach before the very men who held, in a, in a human standpoint, who held their life in their hands. They, they preached even to their own peril. According to church tradition, all of the disciples except for John died a martyr's death. They all were willing to give up their lives. James, the half-brother of, of, of Jesus there, he didn't believe after the resurrection, willing to die. The book of Acts makes it very clear that, that these men who fled the night that he was crucified, they were filled with the Spirit, Acts 2. They were bold as lions. They had seen their Savior. They knew unequivocally their Savior lived, and they were bold as lions. And, and it's interesting, to that point, people will, people will say, well, you know what? That, that's not really solid evidence only because people are willing to die for a cause. That we see it in our culture, unfortunately, today. People give up their lives for quote-unquote religious purposes. People are killing other people on behalf of their religion. And, and that's true, but listen, that misses the point of what I'm saying. People who do this, people who do those things, sincerely believe in their cause, but they don't know that it's true. They hope that it's true. These disciples were in a position, the disciples of Jesus were in a position to know unequivocally whether or not Jesus Christ had raised from the dead. 
They were not hoping it was true. They were not just believing it was true. They knew it was true. They knew it was true. It, it, the, these men, listen, these, this is where it's different as well. These men were not out to kill other people. They were not forcing other people to believe what they were saying. The reality is, is they were suffering for their message. They were willing to suffer for their message. They were not just, I'm going to walk into a room and blow everybody up because of my God. No, no, I'm going to serve you because of my God. And I'm going to give my life up for you because of my God. There's a huge difference. They would have known if what they were saying was true or not. They would have known. The reality is, is they did no harm to anyone. All they did was love their enemies and they willingly accepted their persecution. Why? Because they knew their Savior lived. Vast difference from what we see today. They were not persecuting others because of their beliefs. They were willing to be persecuted because of their beliefs. And when we consider, when you consider the transformation of the disciples in connection to the silence of the Jews, compare them to the silence of the Jews, compare them to the inability to produce a body, to produce any evidence to the contrary, the events of Pentecost are a big evidence. What would cause these disciples to do that? They had met with their risen Savior. And that's what the Bible says. And, and seventh, you see the evidence of Pentecost. You go to Acts 2 through 4. It's amazing. 50 days following the death, Jesus is preaching the doctrine of the resurrection and thousands gather to hear him. And again, Peter himself, he is preaching to people who would have had access to that tomb. If the resurrection was not a fact, they could have proven it. And the reality is, is nobody refused, nobody refused, nobody rebutted him. They were silent. The reality is, is that 3,000 people believed in that day. To the contrary, 3,000. They were in a position to know what he was preaching was true or not, and 3,000 believed. And you see that in Acts 2 and Acts 4. And lastly, before we close, the, the last evidence is the principle of embarrassment. And here's what I mean by that. You, you read this word. If, listen, if you were trying to get people to believe a story, if you were trying to get people to believe you, this is not what you would write. And the evidence of that is clear. You look at all the other ma ma major false religions of the world, you know, where you know where their God, you know where their leader is? He's dead. You know where he stayed after he died? In the tomb. You know, I think about it, when, 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 and you think about it too, when you were kids and you did something foolish and you wanted your parents to believe you, what'd you do? You tried to make up a story that at least seemed plausible, like could happen. You, you, you don't say, oh, well, I'm believing in a Savior that died and three days later He rose again and He appeared to me. They're going to look at you like, go to your room. Because now you're lying. Not only did what you do was fool, now you're lying to me. And the Bible is very clear. It's got nothing to hide. And the principle of embarrassment says this. If we were trying to hide something, you would not include details that seemingly hurt your position. If you were trying to convince or lie to somebody, you're not going to include details that hurt your position. You're, you're, you're not going to include de the details that are likely true. 
You're not going to include something that could undercut or undermine what you're trying to do or that could easily be proven to be false. And the Bible consistently reports numerous details about its main characters, the main people that are not flattering. Peter's denial, David's, David's adultery, Thomas's denial goes on and on and on. These are the when it comes to the resurrection, the, the writers, the writers themselves included, we did not believe it. We spent three and a half years with Jesus. He's telling us about it, and we didn't believe it. And when these ladies come to us, nonsense. Nonsense. Why? Because if it's not true, it's preposterous. But it's true. That's why Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if, Jesus has not, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. But then those who have fallen asleep have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're to be most pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. He says it is true. I mean, if, if they were inventing Christianity, if they were inventing this, if they were making this up, surely they would have come up with a more respectable and believable story. Surely they would have attributed the facts and attributed the eyewitness accounts and attributed all this stuff, not to Mary, but to, but to Nicodemus or, or Joseph, or they would have put other prominent individuals in the mix. They would have said, hey, Jesus appeared to Herod or Pilate. That would be believable. But to Mary? I mean, the first witnesses of, the, of these things, the first witnesses were who? They were women They're, whose testimony would not have been highly regarded in that day. Not who you're trying to build your case. Oh, Mary saw it. Oh, well, if Mary saw it, that's believable. No, that's not what you would do. A woman's testimony was not highly regarded in that society. And you see the response. We don't believe you. They would not, if you were, if you were going to make this up, Mary, of Mag, Mary Magdalene would not be the first witness. She would not. That's not who you're going to build your case behind. And if the disciples were trying to convince people of something they knew wasn't true, that's not how they would go about it. And guys, we could go on and on and on about the Old Testament prophecy and prophecies of Christ Himself regarding the resurrection. The very existence of the church, the very fact that you and I are here today is a, is a witness to the resurrection of Christ. The observance of Sunday, no longer do they worship. For years and hundreds of years they worship on Saturday. After the resurrection, guess where they worship? On Sunday. Why? Because that's the day of our Savior's resurrection. And the conclusion, the conclusion I'd lead us to all of the, uh, is this. Acts 17, 31. Start in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. I started with that word and I'm ending with that word. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And, and this, the resurrection, it's good news, bad news. It's great news if you believe. It is horrific news if you do not believe. 
Why? Because Jesus is coming back one day to judge the world in regards to their response to his life, burial, and resurrection. Not only does the resurrection assure me that my salvation is secure, it assures non-believers that they're going to be judged in their sin. For, the, for everyone who rejects Jesus Christ, there is nothing left to look forward to other than judgment for your sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ assures non-believers of death and eternal hell. At the same time, it assures believers of forgiveness and eternal heaven. That's, that's the two sides of this coin. The, the question for all of us is this. Do you believe? Which side are you on? See, man had chose to sin, turned away from God, went about it their own way, and because of that, death was the sentence. Sin deserved death. And God's solution for man's problem of sin was to put His perfectly righteous, holy Son on a cross to die once and for all, for all humanity, to pay the price that all of our sins deserved, so that whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord could be saved. 2 Corinthians 5, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. The, the great exchange is this. I give Jesus Christ my sins and unrighteousness and filth and all that I am at my core. And you know what I get in exchange for that? I get life. I get righteousness. I get every single thing that I'm not. Utterly not. And then beyond that, He says, you know what, Chris? You're not going to live this Christian life on your own. I'm going to live it in you. I'm going to put my spirit in you, and he's going to live it in you. And he's going to produce the fruit in you. You just follow me. That's the exchange. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not get better, get worthy, make yourself good, none of that. Right where you are, wretched, enemy, sinful, I'll die for you. That, that's the good news that the Bible offers. That, that's the message that the resurrection makes absolutely proven. Romans 1.4, I show you Romans 1.4 just to back that statement up. Who was declared the Son of God with the power by the resurrection from the dead. What was the final proof that Jesus Christ was God's perfect Son? The resurrection. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The question is this, is will you receive Him? By faith. We saw last week, not by sight, by faith. The reality is you say, well, if I lived in that day, I would believe that's not true. The disciples lived in that day, they didn't believe. Thomas lived in that day. He didn't believe until he saw the scars. But look at what Jesus says in verse 29 of John 20. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. That's you and me. Faith. That's faith. We're going to come to God by faith. Not by proof, by faith. Those who come to Him must believe that He is who He says He is. John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to Him He gave the right to be called children 
of God, but as to many as received Him, and we receive Him by faith. Through acknowledging repentance, the world doesn't like that word. It's a biblical word. Word we're going to use it. Repentance means agreement. In repentance, you're simply saying, "God, I I agree with you. I'm a sinner, and I agree with you that my sin deserves death. And yet, I receive Jesus Christ's death in my place. The death that I deserve to die." Jesus Christ died in my stead. I received that by faith. I didn't see it, but with all my heart, I believe that it's true because the Bible tells it. And, and, and John 3.16, we love John 3.16, but don't leave out verses 17 and following. Listen to this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, verse 19, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You say, why would anyone not receive this gift? Because they're going to have to expose themselves as being a wretched sinner. Expose themselves for the deeds that they've done in unrighteousness. And guess what? We love the darkness more than the light. We love to, for you to think of, think of us some way that we really aren't. And Jesus says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The means that we come to God is the same way. We recognize we're a sinner and we ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins. And even as believers, we still come to God. John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even as we walk with the Lord, we're not perfect. We still come back and repent. But everything has to do with Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And I think that's what I want to preach on next week for Easter. Just make sure we understand that. The question is, I close is this. Would you trust Christ as your Savior today? And if you are trusting Christ as your Savior today, will, will we begin by faith to live as if our Savior lives? Like we said last week, will we be steadfast and immovable as 1 John 15 says? Will we live as if we cannot die? Because John eleven twenty five and 26 says in our reality we can't die. Will you receive Jesus Christ's death And the gift of salvation, will you personally receive that today?